hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 225. Thanks so much for joining me this day after Christmas, one day late. I'm so glad you could make it, even though the schedule shifted a little bit. Today's guest is Deborah Marquardt. Uh, she'll be joining us in about five minutes, but before we get I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry and unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we just do this. We love poetry and know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. You know, really click the like button now because uh, there's only six likes and there's a lot of people watching live. So just click that and that would help a lot on YouTube. Over on Facebook, the... Uh, it's always slow to load these days, but uh, if you would, click the like button there and share it there as well. Uh, that really helps. After the fact, leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. Whatever you can do to help poetry spread around the internet is extremely appreciated. Um, that's all we ask for you to do, so please do it right now if you would. Now, uh, like I said, today's guest is Deborah Marquardt, but we're always uh, starting with our Poet Respond poem. And this week's poem was an um, occasional poem, which will come up a little bit later, too, um, about the you know the holiday season, the new year, by a master of occasional poetry, actually. Wendy Vidalock has had a few New Year's-era-type poems in the Poets Response series. And here she is again with The Truth is a Nimble Little Creature. And I'll read her, uh, I'll read the note at the bottom before we play the poem. Um, Wendy says of this, and she couldn't join us today, but she wishes she could. And if you want to um, watch Wendy on a Rattlecast, she's been on several... I can't remember the number, uh, but she was around maybe 100 or so. Just scroll back and you'll find Wendy at some point. But she says, I guess I've come to believe the more wars that pile up, the more destructive things appear, uh, the greater the imperative towards service, wisdom, and the creative impulse. So this is her sort of New Year's holiday type poem in the face of so much, uh, you know, death and destruction going on. Um, here's Wendy Vidalock with The Truth is a Nimble Creature. The truth is a nimble little creature. Gratitude, too. The only flippin' truth is everything moves, says the moon, hovering over every mantra, every sparrow, every dollar, every Congo, every nation, every little good intention. The more difficult the world, the greater the imperative toward blame, toward distraction toward impossible heights and humble strings of twinkle lights. My love, let us vow that through the winter we shall pause by the river where below the frozen surface surely tiny fish are feeding. Let us make a practice of coming to bear the weather, of gathering by the fire, of reading to one another as the sparrow wears her feather, as the moon resolves to move, as the body knows surrender, as the leaves believe September, as rhyme succumbs to reason, as the pause to remember descends upon the season. Yeah, beautiful poem there by Wendy Vidalock, and hopefully... Um, 
we won't get a copyright thing because of the uh, Santa Claus is coming to town playing in the background, which uh, I wasn't sure if she'd be able to appear, so I kind of forgot about uh, the fact that that was in the audio clip that she sent. But it is, if you want to go watch it on the website, it is really neat to have uh, that song playing in the background of that poem. And that was Wendy Vidalock with the truth as a little <laughs> nimble creature. A uh, beautiful poem uh, like Wendy always shares with us. So thanks for sharing that, Wendy. And now we're going to go take a quick break and go to our main guest, Deborah Marquardt. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Uh, as I said, this week's guest is Deborah Marquardt. Uh, she's a distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences and teaches in the MFA program in the creative writing and environment at Iowa State University, as well as the Stone Coast Low Residency MFA program at the University of Southern Maine. Marquardt serves as Iowa's Poet Laureate and the senior editor of Flyaway, a wonderful journal of writing and environment. The author of seven books, including The Horizontal World, Growing Up, Wild in the Middle of Nowhere, and Small Buried Things, Marquardt's been featured on NPR, BBC, all over the place. Um, her newest book is a new and collected, and it is right here, Gratitude with Dogs Under Stairs. And uh, here she is, Deborah Marquardt. Hi, Deborah. How are you doing? I'm great, Timothy. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I love um, just the fact that I get books in the mail sent to me, like randomly. <laughs> and, um, yes. you know, I uh, I hadn't actually seen a book of yours until this appeared. And it's a beautiful book and a new one collected is always a fun one to have. So I'm really glad to, to see you uh, doing so much since that 2007 poem we published that was a finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize, uh, Bowie which we'll read later, and I love that poem. Um, but it's great yeah. to, to look at your new book. Congratulations on it. Thanks so much. Well, that's how you get on the list. You publish a poem, and then you get on the list of, of people who get complimentary copies. And you also chose Bowie for one of those reprint honors where you sort of reprinted it one day, and mm -hmm. that was really nice of you. I mean, it's just amazing to not only get a poem and rattle, but then to get an, to get it re re-upped, you know. Yeah, I always love getting to pull those poems out of the archive because, you know, you can flip through and sort of see what you remember, like, you know, 15 years later, um, what poems mm -hmm. stand out still that you can just recognize from the title. And that was a beautiful one. Um, so it's really fun. It was a great book to read, um, Gratitude with Dog Under Stars. Uh, do you want to start out with the, the opening poem from the book, Choke Cherry? Yeah, well, so, you know, one of the things about doing a new and collected is how do you do the new poems? What are what are the new poems? So there's about 21 kind of new poems that start the collection. And this and this was the one I wanted to start with because it's the most kind of like um, origin poem. I wanted to write a poem that goes really, really deep back, deep back sort of under the skin um, of my memories. And so it's called Choke Cherry. And where I grew up in North Dakota, choke cherries grow everywhere. And we used to make, you know, jams and jellies and things. So this is a memory of, of those days. Choke cherry, prunus melancarpa. Go in August with sisters down the fly buzz dusty rows of elms, ashes, poplars that great grandfather planted to slow the wind. Go swinging empty ice cream buckets braceleted on wrists. All summer, this ripening, sweaty cicada hum, and choke cherries, deadly green droops turned black cherry, then burnt umber. Now the skin is tough and tart, leaves a sandy pucker on the tongue, a catch of grit in the throat. Our maroon fingers thread branches as we heavy the harvest into buckets, 
the poison carried home to cure, call, siphon in colanders, steam kitchen, then thicken to jams, syrups, pint jars stored in root cellar rows, the purple stain of summer shored up against winter's long white bleak. Remember how sometimes you'd swallow a pit? Sweet cyanide of childhood, preserved in bones. Yeah, I love that last yeah, image too. And that poem is Chokecherry, again from Gratitude with Dog Under Stars, the new and collected book from Deborah Marquart. Uh, beautiful cover art as well, as you can see there on screen. And, and you mentioned already, memory is really the central aspect of this poem. It's sort of a journey through um, your life and your recollections in a, in a way that, you know, is, is fascinating. It takes us back. Um, what was the, the impetus for putting this book together, first of all? And why did you organize it the way that you did? Um, well, I had three collections that had been published, and one of them had gone out of print. It was with Pearl Editions, and Pearl Editions um, went out of business, and so that book was out of print. And so um, I just felt it was really time to kind of bring them all under one, you know, under one cover. And it's just really an amazing, it's a totally different experience going back to, say, 1995, the first collection was published. And... Um, I was traveling in Ireland. I was teaching a study abroad class in Ireland when I was proofing the book. And, you know, like they really love poetry in Ireland. So it was just like this really wonderful, gratifying experience to look through all of my poems from the beginning of when I first started writing and publishing poems to, to some totally brand brand new ones. And, um, you know, about Chokecherry, basically, I, I, um, I always do re a lot of research when I write a poem. And I discovered when I was researching choke cherries that they're totally toxic plants. The the leaves and the branches and the roots and the bark and the pits are all poisonous. And the only thing that's edible is the fruit, the actual cherry. And so I started to think about that as a metaphor of um, of childhood. That's that sweet cyanide of childhood preserved in bones hmm. that no matter how long you live or how far away from home you go, there's still this sort of deposit of memory from childhood. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of my poems draw from memory and I've been working much more in the last several years on poems of um, imagination and speculation, mm -hmm. but memory is a great warehouse for for poems. Yeah, it's interesting too in this book. Um, usually when you see a new and collected or selected uh, book, it goes forward in time. Like you start with the earlier, there's like a, the new poems and then we leap way back into the first book. And then you, in this one though, it goes in reverse chronological order. It moves through the most recent books, like you're sort of falling back into memory the whole way through, which is an interesting way to arrange a collection. Um, uh, what did you, what did it feel like to look back at those old poems? Did they still feel like you or did they feel like poems that were somebody else wrote that you sort of could connect with? You know, I, I always wonder about that. They are, they are kind of shocking, you know, to, to read because, you know, as you publish a book, you end up reading your new poems and then end up re reading your newest poems that are not even in any books you published. Um, but I think um, I really, it was really fun reading the poems from my first collection, Everything's a Verb, because I wasn't really a poet. I was really a musician. I'd come, I'd come across from music and I started writing poems because I lost everything in a fire. My band lost everything in a fire. And so I started writing poems. 
And so my first book of poems, they're much more kind of performance texts. And, you know, I perform them with my band and we set them to music. And so it's really, really interesting to read them now in the context of a whole body of work. And for my second book of poems, because a lot of people, when my first book came out, said, oh, she's not really a for-the-page poet, you know, she's more of a performance poet. So then I really tried to write a much more kind of staid, um, for-the-page, with very really regular line, line lengths, and just really sort of looked at stanza structures. Whereas my first book, I wrote a much more wild stanza, you know, sort of ragged lines, and um, so there's a big departure mm -hmm. after my my first book. So it's really fun to return to it and see kind of how much I didn't really worry too much about all that stuff and just focus on expression and um, language, you know, like the power of language. Yeah, I mean, that's what I noticed, that, that it became freer sort of as it went back in time. It, did you did you miss that um, the sense of like, like whatever, I don't care, <laughs> like the attitude <laughs> yes. in the early days. Uh, what was your experience like relating to your former self? Yeah, I did. I didn't. I mean, I do miss it. I do. You know, I still have dreams about quitting everything and going out and joining a heavy metal band and just like, you know, leaving it all behind. So there, there is this idea of the deeper you go into your training and into academe or, um, you know, into the profession of writing the more rules you learn about it and the more that you see sort of what not to do. And so there's something refreshing about this, this, this voice kind of bursting, fumbling toward utterance, you know, and I, I, I mean, I hope that we can all hang on to that voice, you know, the deeper mm -hmm. we get into and try to unlearn unlearn the conventions. And I think that's really happening. I just chose books for my graduate and undergrad poetry classes for the spring semester. And most of those writers are really, really breaking form and breaking rules and listening to their inner voices. Yeah, it's interesting to see because, you know, there's so much energy in that kind of free, more free work and more, you know, spoken word type oriented stuff. And then the, the trick is to sort of combine it and condense it like some kind of like fusion reactor or something um, where, without losing any any of the energy, too. And I think that's that's really the thing that we try to do as page poets, right, is to to get that same energy, but then to find the, a concise way to, to make it as dense as possible. Um, I, I think let's, uh, let's do the next poem. Cause I want to, I don't want to forget about poems. Um, and so let's do, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go, even though I talked about earlier poems, we're going to keep with the newer ones. And next up was, um, when the first love, uh, when the first love of the one you love dies. You want to do that one? Yeah. And this one actually is very measured. I mean, it has a, for, a, almost a formal quality to it. And, and it kind of, I wrote it when, um, the, childhood high school sweetheart of my partner died and I didn't know her but I was just as devastated as he was and um so I started thinking about what what our what our partners former partners contributed to their maturation and to make them you know the person they are when the first love of the one you love dies something in you goes silent too didn't she lap up all the sweetness with a hungry tongue? The hot fudge Sundays he delivered to her front porch swing, summer nights, after his first job folding men's shirts at Pomeroy's department store. 
the billow of her teenage bedroom curtains. What future love could compete with those deep apostrophe dimples? The two of them, so young, her fingers clasping his arm in the prom photo, his blue velvet tucks, the drape of her long white formal covering the casts on her legs, both broken that junior year from shin splints running track. Their wide smiles at the absurdity, the crutches angled against the wall in the photo behind them. Hard to know what unsteadied her, caused her to cast him off, driftless and unloved into the world. But you are grateful for the course she set him on toward you. Dumb luck recipient of love's sweet misfortune, a heart improved through misery. Who did what to whom? Does it matter in the end? Now death steps in to sweep the equations. I can still hear her voice, one friend said upon learning of her end. That tongue so quick and cruel, that made first marks on the one you love. That tongue so young that haunts each kiss he now delivers to your willing lips. Yeah, another beautiful and that, poem, yeah. That poem is for Rosie. Yeah, when the first love of the one you love dies. Again, new poems from Gratitude with Dog Under Stars by Deborah Marquardt. Um, and um, so it was really interesting to hear about the uh, the way you started writing poetry as a metal musician. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, what was the impetus to start putting them on the page in this way, as opposed to just as song lyrics? Uh, what was that transition like? And what was the metal band like? <laughs> I'm curious about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had been writing song lyrics for a long time and then, you know, interpreting song lyrics of the songs that we were doing and you know, I was in a progression of bands and um, mostly the last sort of three or four bands were rock and hard rock bands. And so we were doing like, you know, progressive heavy metal and, you know, Kansas, Boston, Rush, you know, Sticks, Led Zeppelin, those kinds of bands. And um, then when we lost everything in the fire, I didn't, I didn't have a way to make a living anymore. I mean, we had a band, but we had, but we didn't have and we had gigs, but we didn't have any equipment and we didn't have any way to get to the gigs. And so um, fire, you know, had been the agent of the destruction, but I was sort of stranded in my efficiency apartment in North Fargo. And I just lit a candle and kind of said, okay, you know, you got my attention. Like, what were you, what were you trying to tell me? And, you know, I had always been interested in writing song lyrics and actually writing kind of bad poems in high school in a notebook. So it was pretty natural to start writing poems. Um, and then I just tried to pull things over from music that I knew about music, you know, pacing, intonation, um, the acoustic value of words, and kind of bring it over to poetry. And then I started taking class. I mean, I went back on the road after that, but then I was really it was like poetry stepped in and kind of saved me. It, language offered a, a a bridge out of that just terrible state of dis, destruction. Um, and and the other thing that kind of occurred to me was, and it might sound strange to say it, but you know we lost sixty thousand dollars worth of equipment in a really hot 
two-hour truck fire. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking, if everything could burn in that time, guitars and amplifiers and power amps and microphones and microphone stands, then that stuff seems like really solid, you know? But then I realized that I was... I, I should invest myself, my energy in something more durable mm -hmm. that would last longer. And oddly enough, poetry and writing became that sort of durable thing because um, it goes on, you know, it's, it's kind of indestructible in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point too. The, the fungible quality of a poem where, you know, it's, it's everywhere <laughs> it's at the fungible. same time, all having the same value. It's true. Uh, so what was it yeah. like that the difference between writing for song lyrics versus writing poems? I mean, it, there's a really interesting way that um, there's sort of more forgiveness in song lyrics. Like you can totally mishear lyrics. Like there's some songs oh, yeah. that I've loved my <laughs> whole life. And then I realized like after 20 years that I misheard this, what I thought was a great lyric and it's totally different. And like, who cares? And there's other songs that you don't know because there's so much more to fall back on you know you, have, you don't even know what it's about but you still have the emotion everything all the resonance coming through the voice and the sound and the rhythm that you can sort of play with but a, a poem is so stripped down um it, so there's sort of both more like less freedom but then there's more too in a weird way so so how do you compare the two well there there are a lot of differences you know because with a song lyric um when you're singing you really ride the you really ride the vowels i mean you know consonants are death to singing because as soon as you sing a consonant it kind of stops and so what you do is you hold on to vowels and you you ride you ride vowels and you can sort of like do acrobatic moves around using vowels to sort of travel through a line so you can make a a short line last a really long time depending on how deep your breath unit is, by just, you know, using the vowels. Um, and you can do that with poetry too, but, you know, there is limitation to the visual because a line is only so long on the page. But in performance, you can also make a line longer by doing the same thing using sort of vowels to travel. But I think there are a lot of commonalities. And one really big one is, you know, when you first learn a song, whether you've written it or you're cop, you know, sort of covering it, you learn the song, you learn the melody, and you learn the core, the 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 chords, and you learn the the words, and then there's a period of time you're sort of working off of usually a, some kind of a cheat sheet or like rough memory, and then there's a period where you you learn it, and then that's not really the end of it at all. It's like just sort of the beginning of it because once you learn it then there's this whole big area of interpretation of it where you you get to sort of let go let go of all of the what the words actually mean and just sort of live on the acoustic value of the the songs in the lyrics and i think that's true with poems too i mean that you can really fuss for a long time about words in a poem and make sure that the words you know do what you want them to do make sense or not make sense or but then eventually, you know, when you read a poem, you kind of have to let go of all of the that work that you did and just live with the acoustic life of the of the language. And that's that's I think when it really becomes a living thing for me, the poem or the song. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I mean, when there's the the album, you know, like that's that recording is fixed in time too, and the book is the same kind of way. Even though you might interpret the poem. So if you see like performers, a lot of times they'll be doing their 
you know older songs that they love but then they reinterpret them and reimagine them so much i mean like bob dylan singing like some oh, songs <laughs> 20 years apart is like two totally different songs you know and so i was just yeah. i was just gonna say that like i saw dylan a couple of years ago and i was like is that blown in the wind really like I, you know yeah but you know you can imagine how many times he's had to play some of those songs so you want to you know change them do, do you get that impulse to, to mix it up? I, I, I'm reminded of um, having Robert Pinsky on, I think, a year or two ago. And, and he was he would sort of he memorizes all the poems and it kind of riffs, you know, and the order of the stanzas isn't the same as what it was in the book whatsoever. And um, and it's just sort of like jazz for him, too. Do you get that sense of like wanting to riff on the poems and, and do them a little bit in, differently in performances? I do. I do that a lot. And like when I go into the schools, actually, sometimes I just leave certain things out because I don't want to get into trouble with the teachers. So I have sort of the clean versions of poems and the not so clean versions. That's or... fine. Like just like Spotify, <laughs> the kids bop. <laughs> sometimes I'll drop lines out of poems if I'm reading them live, as opposed to when I know I have a more patient reader, you know, for the for the page, or I might add an article or, you know, like something that helps nail the line down a little bit better. Um, yeah. And actually when I did the, when I did the, um, the proofing of the galleys of, of this new and collected, I was able to go in and put some new, some new variations in the poems. I didn't do like revisions at all because that's just ridiculous. You know, you, you should be looking forward and writing new poems, but I did go in and and adjust some poems that I had really for years been reading differently than they appeared in print. Because, yeah. you know, when, when you get them out and you start reading them, they, they do change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, let's hear another one. Uh, Landline is next. Another poem diving into the past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, this is a poem about an ancient piece of technology, which is um, these wall-mounted telephones that if you have an older house you still have one of those metal plates on your wall in your kitchen that well, actually we had a greg kosmicki um, on two or three weeks ago and he had one in the background so everybody was loving <laughs> the fact that uh, wondering if it still worked too which is funny <laughs> yeah i mean they were so unsightly you know you can't what are you going to do you kind of have to cover them up with the with the wall-mounted telephone so this is basically what in part inspired this is called landline I kept the beige wall-mounted trimline telephone with its lighted touchpad and Bell South label hanging from its metal plate on my kitchen wall. Long after I silenced the ringer and disposed of the answering machine, long after I stopped payment of the phone bill, long after discovering that no dial tone droned on when I picked up the receiver, I never picked up the receiver. Long after I learned that the cable carrying the landline into the building no longer ran into the building. But I kept the beige trim line plugged into its metal plate on my kitchen wall with its curling jump rope cord, which we girls stretched thin into the bathroom, our umbilical for private calls. Because if the power went out and all the plugged in phones failed, because the trim line was engineered to receive current straight through the jack, a fact I learned when our neighbor lady was struck by lightning while gossiping during a thunderstorm. So if the expected cataclysmic solar flare, the really big one, finally hit Earth, 
Or the magnetic poles shift, as reported to do every half a million years, knocking out all cell phones and computers, not to mention ATMs, bank accounts, and cable TV. At least I could pick up the landline and dial the number, that number that still materializes on my tongue, and say, hello, Mother, hello, are you okay? Yeah, and that was Landline. Another great poem from the new section of poems uh, from Gratitude with Star or with Dog Under Stars by Deborah Marquardt. And there have been a few questions already, Deborah, about um, the the formatting of the poems. Um, the decision, and it's only I think in the newest section, if I remember right, of um, not capitalizing um, the the first letters of sentences. Um, and then also, uh, Monica Dobos wants to know, um, it seems like you have a preference, she says, for tersets. Is there any reason yeah. behind that? So so those two questions about just the, the formatting of poems. It, it is interesting to think about, you know, compressing that energy like we talked about into a certain form. Why choose to do what we do? So so why those two choices? I do seem to like tersets. I notice this, especially looking at a whole body of work. And I think there's something about tersets. It's like I usually I usually use couplets for really kind of grave and serious and sort of lyric poems. Mm. And one of the things I like about couplets is it sort of slows the reader down and it feels very sort of pure and elemental. And so then quatrains feel like a little bit elaborate, you know, there's like so much going on, but tercets are nice because they're, they're shorter. And I feel not, not to say I don't use when I write poems, I don't use a, sort of what we would think of as a paragraphing logic in my stanza structure. I don't, you know, sort of stay with one subject in a, you know, stanza and then sort of break the stanza and go to another subject. But somehow over the course of moving the lines around and breaking them and re-breaking them differently, I find I often do do end up, you know, um, adhering to a, a, a tercet. But the other thing, I, I came up with this strategy for revision that, I really need to write an article about this, but it's like, I call it the characteristic line length because I'm a free verse poet. I don't really work with, you know, scansion or I don't count, you know, syllables or anything. And so, you know, how do you get compression of language? How do you sort of incentivize yourself to make those big sacrifices that make the poem, you know, tighter? And what I figured out was that often in a draft of a poem, I would be able to identify a kind of you know, germ, germ, kind of like germplasm line. Like it was just like this, you know, line that was the central line in the poem, the line that felt like the most finished and pure. And so then what I try to do in revision is get as the rest of the lines to match that line length. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the final version of the poem will have that line length. But what it does, what it does when you try to do this is to get all the language to begin to adhere to the length of the and the feeling and the sort of rhythmic structure of that of that characteristic line is that it forces choices. Um like you have usually have to get rid of words that fall off the end of lines because they're maybe part of a clause and um you don't want to break on you know, of or from or, and so it also forces syntactic changes because sometimes you can move, if the words are hanging off the edge of the line, sometimes you can syntactically sort of take those words and move them somewhere else in adjoining lines, just kind of reorganize, you know, sort of move them somewhere. 
and it'll create surprises in language that you know you hadn't anticipated. Mm -hmm. So it's just a strategy I've developed over the years as a free verse poet to get myself to revise and you know compress and make really hard choices in language. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I've never you know almost one line is being like the lodestone of the whole poem or something and helping yeah. form the structure. You know, two hundred and twenty five episodes in it, no one's ever mentioned that technique. It's really interesting to think of it that way, and it really makes a lot of sense. Um, and then, you know, other people do mention that, um, that, that way of being just having some kind of forced choice. So you don't have to, um, you know, so you're, you're willing to kill your darlings, as they say, is a really important, uh, thing to do too. It's really interesting. I, I should say that tercets mean three line stanzas just for people who don't know that word. Cause there are people who, who don't, uh, aren't familiar with every, all the poetry terminology. Um, but it's interesting that, that different people, you know, view that differently. So Katie Dozier says, I like tercets to hint at beginning, middle and end of life, that it's all a cycle. And then uh, Joshua Williams uh, mentions that tercets tend to create an impetus, a push forward to the next line. And for me, I think of it as the amount of white space that you're creating and sort of the, the there's a way that the lines sort of float if there's more white space and they kind of like move a little faster if there's less. And th that's to me more how I encounter a different line length and stuff. So it's really interesting to see the different ways people interpret that. Um, mm -hmm. Let's keep going. Let's keep going with the poems and, and we'll do... Um, We'll do uh, things not to put in your mouth, which I think is for me. It's one of the most memorable poems in the book. It's hard to, um, it's hard to not sort of choke on your own <laughs> tongue while you're reading this poem. But let's hear it. <laughs> well, this is actually kind of a found poem because I went to the um, State Historical Museum in um, in Des Moines, Iowa, and I found this medical e exhibition. It was in um, OBG. No, it was. Um, an ear, nose, and throat doctor who had done who had done had a practice for three decades in Des Moines, and it was everything on display that he had dug out of people's ear, nose, and throat passages, and so um, it's called. Um, they were all on display, so it's called things not to put in your mouth. Medical display, Iowa State Historical Museum, Des Moines, Iowa. A penny, a quarter, a button, a paper clip. Safety pins closed and open, most ingested while changing diapers. In two shadow boxes, Dr. James Downing displayed the objects he'd extracted from patients' food and air passages between 1929 and 1956. A wishbone, a kernel of corn over large, a pen nib, beads from a necklace with a string still attached, a nail, a screw, a cover from a bottle of anison, thumb tacked in rows, suspended in glassine envelopes. The objects floated in glass cases, a warning about things not to put in your mouth. A toothpick, a rhinestone earring, a wadded up ball of paper, a metal snap, a cockleburst seed, spiky as a porcupine, a long sewing needle, a sardine can turnkey, many small chicken bones, things with sharp edges, cumbersome things that get caught in the throat, things that go down hard and refuse to come up, a Daughters of the American Revolution pendant, a gold hinge from a jewelry box, a price tag marked 89 cents for item number 1025293 from the Yonkers department store. The exhibit includes the doctor's leather medical bag, 
and his instruments of extraction. A tracheal dilator, a uvula dilator, laryngeal and esophageal forceps, along with a humorous note jotted in a hospital report. Feed her anything but nickels and pennies, the note reads, beside the very nickel extracted from the child's throat. Yeah, so that's such a tactile poem. And we talk about, you know, advising people to use all the senses in poems um, often. And then that's one, it's a sense that you don't usually see a poem that strongly, uh, (laughs) strongly putting forward. There was Things Not to Put in Your Mouth, again, by (laughs) Deborah Marquardt from Gratitude with Dog Under Stars. And um, yeah, it is just such a such a vivid poem. I really love that one. Um, and it's another poem too, where you play a lot with the with the format. Um, you know, there's a very within those again, it's in tercets, but then there's a lot of freedom in the way that you lay out the stanzas. Um, there's that indentation um, effect, um, you know, sort of stepping down each line. And then there's um, rather than punctuation, having little little gaps in the text. I'll put it back on the screen so people can see what I mean. Um, and then you pick up punctuation again toward the end. And um, which is interesting, too, with some commas in the very last stanza. Um, and, and we didn't really talk about that lack of capitalization in the first poems, too. So, so can you talk a little bit more about that? Because people have been asking about it. Um, what is it? How do you make those choices within a poem? There's a certain freedom um, that, that comes from from choosing to do to write a poem in this way and the other ways, too. Um, is that is it sort of a, something that you're conscious of or is it something that you just uh, go by the feel of it? Well, um, you know, I I think, you know, there was a convention, I mean, probably in the 1900s to capitalize every first letter of every line. And that's always driven me crazy because it is a form of punctuation and always sort of stops me, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like there, I, I, I'm, it's different between poems. So the poem sort of determines whether or not it's going to be one of those looser poems that doesn't have as much punctuation, or if it's going to be a poem that really does kind of adhere to punctuation conventions like a capital letter and end punctuation periods. And um, so the poem decides that part of it. But once I get into that territory where the poem is kind of saying, no, I want to be more like lowercase, and then, you know, then I really try to let go of punctuation as much as possible. And, um, you know, I mean, I sometimes tell my students, free yourself from the tyranny of the sentence, because the sentence really organizes the way we think, you know, subject, verb, object, um, construction. And so poetry is a place where you can kind of dismantle some of those things. So I I really like it when I get into one of those poems where it's, it's just sort of swimming in language and you're letting go of punctuation. And, um, you know, the ending of a line is a form of punctuation in and of itself. So you usually don't need a comma there at the end. And you don't need a capital letter at the beginning of a line necessarily. And and I even have taken to using like a kind of cesura or like a three or a five space, um, you know, s- sort of spacing um, mechanism if like if I don't want to use punctuation, but I feel like the line won't make any sense if there's no period there, but I'm working inside of a poem that doesn't use punctuation, then I'll use the cesura space to kind of 
give the pause that the reader needs in order to make sense of what the line means. And um, I don't know, I was reading Ellen Bryant Voigt's um, book, um, The Art of Syntax. And, you know, she she just has this one book. I can't remember the title of it now. It's right here somewhere. But she just kind of lets go of punctuation entirely. And, and the lines are just mashed together and they're and they make and they make total sense, you know. So I think we probably need a lot less of that in poems than we sometimes feel we need. Yeah, I love that that, yeah. that phrase, the tyranny of the sentence. And it's true. I mean, the, all the conventions of, of style and grammar that we use are for, for clarity to come through. And so if clarity comes through other ways, then who cares? <laughs> you know, that those uh, prescriptive grammarians kind of go nowhere because everything's always evolving, too. So there's all that on top of it. Uh, you mentioned something. You said the poem decides um, how it works. And of course, you know, poets all know what you mean, because you, you feel that sometimes, that the poet's making choices of its own. Uh, but, but what do you mean when you say that? Um, where are the poems? How would you say, you know, where the poems are coming from? Um, what is it that, that makes a poem? What's that source? What is the poem? I don't know. I mean, it's it's a it's a feeling. Um, it's like um, going back to the characteristic line exercise, revision exercise. A lot of times, I'll the way a poem, poem will start is I'll hear a line, and then that line will make its way into my notebook if I if I find a way to remember it long enough to write it down. And the line might just live in my notebook for a long time before it adheres itself or calls down more lines to itself. But um, I really do feel like the poems have their own life and their own way of being and way of wanting to be in the world. And it's just kind of my job to um, kind of bring them down, you know, and interpret them into um, the material plane so that they can feed on the breath and the body of you know, in my case, in my own case of me, if they're my poems, but that's what we do. You know, we're, we're constantly when we're singing or when we're reading, reading literature, reading poems, we're using, we're lending our breath and our bodies to making something alive hmm. for the duration of that sort of acoustic life of it. And so I, I do really feel that they are, they're sort of living, living things, you know, mm -hmm. And that I feel lucky when one gives it up to me, you know, to to bring down. I mean, and they are, you know, I mean, I draw from my own autobiographical autobiographical experience. So they are mine to a certain degree, but I feel like um, they are they are given. They are given to me. Is there is there something spiritual to that? Like, is there I, I'm just always curious because I, I don't know. You know, you feel that feeling. And, and what is it? Is it some kind of collective voice? Is it like epigenetics? Is it like the voice of God whispering in your ear? Do you have any sort of sense of, of where that comes <laughs> from? And I assume it happens with songwriting and performing music, too. It's like something bigger than yourself, which is really the, I think, the reason why so many of us even write in the first place is just to feel that feeling of, of not being yourself and being for a moment something bigger than yourself. So, so how do you conceive of, of what that is? I understand it much better when I think about it in terms of music because I really feel that there's this huge music of the cosmos that's out there and what we know to be music is just some small fraction of what we can hear through our 
you know, relatively small and limited bodies, right? So we hear this thing that we think of as music, but it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of it. And then we bring it down so that other people can listen to it. And so I think it's the same way with with language and with poems. So we're using words that make sense in our own individual sort of autobiographical context, but they are resonant ideas. Um, they're resonant ideas that are bigger than the subject matter. And that's why when I hear a poem written by somebody else, I, you know, it, I get a vibration off of it because it's the feeling that drives the poem more than the actual words and the the literal meaning of the words. Mm -hmm. And so it's more the it's more the feeling, I think, that the poems kind of ride ride on. Yeah, it's interesting, too, in the context of artificial intelligence, you know, rising lately. And, and, you know, there's some songs written by AI now. I think it was, is it Microsoft put out a thing where you could have a whole band and make your own music and just with AI? So you can say, like, um, you know, send me a, a, a death metal song about mushrooms and Ovaltine, and it will, like, make a song. <laughs> um, and you can, like, tweak it and stuff. And, and But there's, in a way, there's no heart inside of that, too. And, and I wonder, is it possible for there to be a heart? Like, like what is, you know, um, is, is it only humans that can channel that, do you think? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I I really don't know yet. I think the jury's out on AI and what I, AI is capable of doing. Um, but I think about the, you know, my first book of poems I wrote in the middle of the night um, because I was work, going to graduate school and working all day. And then I would collapse into bed at nine at night and then wake up at three in the morning and go to my writing room for two hours. And I would just write totally blind, just, you know, just I didn't, had no idea what I was writing. I was just putting language down. And um, then I go back to sleep and then I go to work. and I take my notebooks with me and then read it and be shocked at what I had written. And I don't think, you know, I don't think that that AI can do exactly that. Because that's like a kind of a, that's kind of a process, a processing of experience that goes like beyond logic. Um, that's somewhere between a completely un unconscious stream, you know, sort of stream of consciousness kind of. Mm -hmm. um, and then that doesn't even count all of the, you know, the, the hand wringing that poets do, looking for the right word for months and, you know, all of that. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. I don't know. I, that. I yeah. I, I mean, I think that I, I could write um, like Hallmark cards really well, probably, but not the kind yeah. of poems that that we write in books like Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars. Um, I always think that uh, every poem should have some of your blood in it. And like, mm -hmm. I always tell my students, you know, like when when uh, Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton were married and they carried a little a necklace of each other, vials of each other's blood. Do you remember this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a little necklace. And I always think every poem you send out in the world should have like a little bit of your blood in it. And I don't know what AI blood, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what AI blood like reads like or sounds like or feels like. Yeah, that's a really great way to think about it, I think. Um, let's hear another poem. Uh, and this is from an older book. Uh, so we're starting to move back in time like we were doing. Uh, this is Kablooey is the sound you'll hear. Oh, yeah. Well, this is a childhood memory um, about the time that my sister um, Judy blew up the ceiling of my brother's bedroom with a shotgun. This doesn't ruin the poem to tell you that. It's called Kablooey is the sound you'll hear. 
Kablooey is the sound you'll hear, then plaster falling, and the billow of gypsum. After your sister blows a hole in the ceiling of your brother's bedroom with the shotgun he left loaded and still resting on his dresser. It's Saturday, and the men are in the fields. You and your sister are cleaning house with your mother. Maybe your sister hates cleaning that much, or maybe she's just that thorough. But somehow she has lifted the dust, the gun to dust it or dust under it. You are busy mopping the stairs. And from the top landing where you stand, you turn toward the sound to see your sister cradling the smoking shotgun in her surprised arms, like a beauty queen clutching a bouquet of long-stemmed roses after being pronounced the official winner. Then the smell of burnt gunpowder reaches you, dirty orange and sulfurous, like spent fireworks. And through the veil of smoke, you see a hole smoldering above her head, a halo of perforations in the ceiling, the drywall blown clean through insulation to naked joists, that dark constellation where the buckshot spread. The look on your sister's face is pure shit-faced shock. You'd like to stop and photograph it for blackmail or future family stories, but now you must focus on the face of your mother, frozen there at the base of the stairs, where she has rushed from vacuuming or waxing, her frantic eyes searching your face for some clue about the extent of the catastrophe. But it's like that heavy quicksand dream where you can't move or speak. So your mother scrambles up the steps on all fours, rushes past you to the room where your sister has just now found her voice, already screaming her story. It just went off. It just went off. As if a shotgun left to rest on safety would rise and fire itself. All this will be hashed and rehashed around the supper table. But what stays with you all these years later, what you cannot forget, is that moment when your mother waited at the bottom of the steps for a word from you, one word, and all you could offer her was silence. Yeah, but a great ending on that poem. Um, again, that was uh, Kablooey is the sound you'll hear. Uh, one of the poems from Gratitude with Dogs Under Sta- Stars uh, from Deborah Marquardt. And, and it's, it's interesting to think about, um, you know, poems like this that are, they're so rooted in memory. Um, you know, did you know, like that, that wonderful ending, um, which was, uh, you know, that, that silence, um, uh, yeah. at, the, at that moment when your mother waited at the bottom of the steps for a word from you, one word, and all you could offer her was silence. Um, first off, did you, did you realize that that was what you were writing toward when you were writing the poem? Like, did, did that memory... Was there something about that, that the silence was the resonant part of it, something you were aware of before you wrote the poem, or did you realize that in the process? It was it was a family story that we told for years and years um, about what happened, and mostly it was a funny family story because nobody was ever hurt. I mean, nobody was hurt, obviously. So many of these stories end up tragically. Um, but then it was in my notebook just as shotgun. I knew I wanted to write it someday, but it was only when I had that realization that you just mentioned about my mother and what she must have gone through in those seconds down there waiting at the base of the stairs to for me just to say it's okay you know but I I was just like so shocked Mm -hmm. I 
I couldn't. She could see that I was okay, but she didn't know, you know, what was in the room that I, I could look and see that my sister was fine. But, um, and when I started to think, my God, what must have gone through her mind mm -hmm. that that, that was what made it a poem for me. It was that I didn't even try writing it until suddenly I made that connection. Mm. And then, then I was like, oh yeah, now it's a poem. Yeah. So know? then I guess you would say that you were writing toward that conclusion, right? If, uh, if you were, you had that idea. Uh, the other thing I want to ask about just with memory in general with poems, it, you know, our memories are so fallible, you know, I mean, there's so much that we don't recognize. Like, I mean, eyewitness testimony is like the worst evidence possible because we just imagine things and we sort of see these projections and then we photocopy and photocopy and photocopy them and they're just wrong by the time we remember. Do you worry about that at all in writing sort of memory-based poetry, that, that you're not getting the details right? Or do you think that there are stories that who cares about what the details were because these are the memories and the memories are what matter? Um. <clears throat> Well, not for poems so much. When I worked on my memoir, I really enlisted my sisters because I had I had three sisters. One of my sisters died, but um, actually Judy, the one who blew the ceiling out with my brother's shotgun. Uh, so I'd go and I'd ask them, okay, I remember it was this way. So that's a nice thing about having siblings is they can kind of be, you know, collaborators. Um, and I haven't had, I honestly haven't had anyone come and say, you know, you wrote that all wrong or you misrepresented it. But with poems, I don't really know that it's so important that the sort of literal matter-of-fact truth is necessary. It might be more in, in nonfiction, an issue since nonfiction goes up against journalism, immersion journalism and things like that. In poetry, I think it's more the feeling and the spirit of the moment. And as you say, I mean, like psychologists know this, they testify in court about... Um, eyewitness testimony is some of the most unreliable testimony out there because in the middle of emergencies, we see things totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really weird, too, like doing shows on the Rattlecast, like stuff's taped and I remember things a certain way. And I'm like, wait a minute, did I really say that? And you just your your recollection just isn't isn't very accurate a lot of the time. But but there's a poetic truth that's bigger and deeper than the truth of which I guess, you know, ties to the emotion and the and the feeling and the just the broader implications of everything rather than the details. So it's interesting to mm -hmm. hear about that. Um, let's let's do Bowie next, which is the poem from Rattle uh, way back in 2007. <laughs> and I, I just love this poem. So it's great to hear it, uh, you know, from you in person. Thank you so much for publishing this poem, Bowie. And so you came to realize that a married man is like a drowning victim when you find him drenched, adrift, and unhappy in the vast ocean of his marriage. And won't you always be the one to spot him? a floating speck on the horizon, flapping his arms for rescue, desperate mouth ringing an O above the rolling crests and waves. You on the high, dry deck of the cruise ship, in your crisp white shorts and espadrilles, aren't you the beacon? Aren't you the life preserver? And when you jump into the sea salt foam, if only for a refreshing swim, don't you understand that he will seize upon you, strong, buoyant swimmer that you are, grab your shoulders, pull your head under with his weight, so dense in the water, and down among the reefs and coral, with your new copper coin eyes, you will see then how he rides upon the shoulders 
of his water-breathing seahorse wife, and his mermaid mistresses, those water-nymph former lovers, and a whole tag-team pyramid of three-breasted women who tried over the years to save him. Even then, next time, when you see another one go under, does it give you pause? Does it stop you from jumping in? No, not once, not ever. Yeah, kind of a great ending, great, great extended metaphor in that poem, Buoy, again, from uh, Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars. Um, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is um, is nature. You know, so much of your work is nature-based, um, and, you know, Flyway Journal is a journal of the environment. You teach environmental studies. Um, how much of that, how did that develop? How did that become a, a main focus of your work and interest? Um, I think that uh, it just happened kind of naturally since I grew up in a rural agricultural place. And so um, I was just sort of, you know, aware. A lot of the material that I was writing was about working the land and agriculture and growing things and plants. And although, you know, I I um, rejected that and ran away from it. And that's why I dropped out of college and joined a band and kind of went into culture and music. I often say I got hijacked by popular culture and fashion and things like that. But then eventually kind of came back to it. And I think living in Ames, Iowa, where I teach Iowa State University, I mean, like the NPR station used to broadcast the farm report, you know, every like afternoon, about two or three times a day. And you'd hear about the hog, like corn futures and the hog report. So it's sort of like everywhere around you at a place like Iowa State, which is a science and technology university. But then I just noticed that um, everything I wanted to write about, you know, if I if I did research on it, um, you know, usually sort of looked into the science of the plants or looked into questions of soil or I'm writing a book about oil right now, the oil boom in my home state. And any um, any research that you do that, you know, deals with natural history or ecology it just yields so much interesting language. I mean, I love the language that scientists use. They think a lot about the words that they use to name plants. And so there's just a lot of deep, sort of beautiful, there's a really rich linguistic history in the language of science. So just increasingly, whenever I get an idea for a poem, I'll just start researching the subject, mm -hmm. you know, before I... Um, before I move forward with the poem. And it, it just brings more, I think, more specific kind of crunchy language and unusual language into into poems. Yeah, and, and more memorable aspects too, because they're, they're more interesting. Um, uh, what is your what do you think about the the purpose of um you know writing about the environment? Do, do you think of it as educational? You know, do you feel like it's um um, you know, with so much environmental destruction going on everywhere, um, do, do you think it's it's a part of uh, like a political effort, um, or do you think is, is it raising awareness that kind of thing that you're interested in, or is it something more um, I don't know more personal than that? I guess you could say. I think there's so many reasons why being attentive to the ecology of your subject. Let's just, you know, use that just general or sort of, you know, what uh, Lawrence Buell calls the environmental imagination. 
So if you sort of look at the environmental imagination of any subject you're writing about and think about, you know, like the the deep history of if you're writing about, you know, whether you're writing about a a pencil, you know, or you're, you know, writing about a um a a pig or, you know, writing about a plant or a tree. Like I have a poem about the magnolia that my neighbor cut down that made me so mad and Um, I did all this research on magnolias. And so sometimes it's a praise song. Sometimes it's just a sort of like relishing in the incredible beauty um, uh, or usefulness or, you know, something that's in the natural world. And that in and of itself is a very political act because the more that you can get people to love something, the more you can get them to pay attention to it and remember it and then potentially work to protect it if it's in you know in trouble and so so even the most personal thing then becomes political but then there is a whole sort of environmental poetry and eco poetry that's much more um political with the intention of sort of fighting back and you know making statements um changing changing politics you know so it's it just Again, I think it's the poem itself that will will tell you which way it wants to come out. Yeah, editing a journal that's based on that. Um, yeah. Flyway. Uh -huh. um, how much of, of the selections that you make for what to publish are based on the message it's sending versus the the sort of poetry itself? Um, you know, I, I talked to who was I guess I think it was Troy Jollymore was talking about, um, you know, political poetry is being hard because you're sort of just preaching to the choir and sort of like, you know, rallying the troops, but then there's no, um, you know, there's no deeper exploration than that in a lot of political poetry. Do you find that when it comes to environmental poetry too? Does it have that same, you know, um, you know, sloganeering type aspect? Or, um, or do you find that it's a lot more nuanced just naturally? I think it's much more nuanced. It's that idea of sort of telling it slant, you know? I mean, um, if if a piece comes at it like really, really direct and is very didactic, it's usually not successful. And even though the author might have like the very best of, of intentions, it doesn't, it's not persuasive because it's not engrossing because it's too heavy handed in its approach to the subject matter. And so, you know, I think it really has to be organic. And I, I just more and more, I'm thinking about the role that love plays in, in writing. And I feel I feel that like writing a poem or writing the I'm working on two books right now. And eventually, you know, you sort of fall so in love with them that you just you wouldn't abandon them, you know, like you wouldn't abandon them like you wouldn't abandon your own child, you know, that that they and so you you figure out ways to get them to the page successfully. But the really direct approach um you know, just stating it in a kind of a preachy manner, you know, it usually doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It just, we're, we're, you know, people are so used to turning that off. Yeah, it's, it's true. It sort of doesn't get past the, the filter of it. So I always think of uh, in Dune, they have these um, force field kind of shields around the person's body. You know, and then they can't use guns because the, it'll turn on the shield and it doesn't work. So they have to do like sort of slow motion sword fighting or something. I don't know if that was preserved in the movie. I can't remember. But but in the book, that was a real aspect. And you kind of have to do that. You have to kind of like sneak in through someone's armor 
to get a um, political message across, I think. And, and that's really the way it actually works. And so not only is it, you know, bad poetry when it's just sort of pedantic, but it's also ineffective. So that's a, that's a really good point. Um, if anybody has any questions for Deborah, uh, there's sort of one more little segment. If you have any questions, leave them in the chat windows on Facebook, YouTube. I'll pass them along. But let's hear the, the penultimate poem, uh, Deborah, which was uh, Lament. It was a, a section of a longer poem. Yeah, this is um, this is part of a poem that I'm continuing to work on about the oil boom in my home state. And um, I started to write these poems when I would go up to the Bakken um, Three Forks oil um, boom. And so this was um, this is called Lament, and it's it's the last in a five part poem. Uh, Lament. North Dakota, I'm worried about you. The companies you keep. All these new friends, North Dakota, beyond the boom, beyond the precious resources, do you really think they care what becomes of you? North Dakota, you used to be the shy one, enchanted secret land loved by only a few. North Dakota, when I traveled away and told people I belonged to you, North Dakota, your name rolled awkwardly from their tongues, a mouthful of rocks the name of a foreign country. North Dakota, you were the blushing wallflower, the natural beauty, nearly invisible, always on the periphery. North Dakota, the least visited state in the union. Now everyone knows your name, North Dakota. The blocks, the blogs and all the papers are talking about you, even 60 minutes. I'm collecting your clippings, North Dakota. The pictures of you from space, the flares of natural gas in your northern corner, like an exploding supernova, a massive city where no city exists, a giant red blight upon the land. And those puncture wounds, North Dakota, take care of yourself. The injection sites, I've seen them on the maps, 4,000 active wells, one every two miles. All your indicators are up, North Dakota. 18 billion barrels, some estimates say. More oil than we have water to extract. More oil than we have atmosphere to burn. North Dakota, you could run the table right now. You could write your ticket. So how can I tell you this, North Dakota? Your politicians are co-opted, or cowards, or bought out, or honest and thwarted. They're lowering the tax rate for oil companies. They're greasing the wheels that need no greasing. They're practically giving the water away. They have opened you up and said, come in, take everything. North Dakota, dear Sleeping Beauty, Please wake up. What will become of your sacred places? What will become of the prairie dog, the wolf, the wild horses, the eagle, the meadow lark, the fox, the elk, the pronghorn, the rare mountain lion, the roads, the air, the topsoil, your people, your people? What will become of the water? North Dakota, who will ever be able to live with you? Once this is all over, I'm speaking to you now as one wildcat girl to another. 
Be careful, North Dakota. Yeah, beautiful example of um, you know the way to make poetry political. You know that line, North Dakota, dear Sleeping Beauty, please wake up, is the message. Um, but then you know, covered in so much rhythm and, and music that um, you know the message gets to to slide through and, and connect with people. That was lament, um, another poem from Gratitude with Dogs Under Stars. Um, yeah, so great example of that, Deborah. Um, you, you mentioned having two books that you're working on now. Um, what are those? How are they different from from what you've shared here, and uh, and what's in the, you know, what's in the books, and, and how, you know, what's what's the the trajectory of what you're working on now? Well, this um, it's a the the long book length poem I'm working on right now is called "Leave It in the Ground," and it's just an extension of these this five part poem that I wrote in Small Buried Things, and um, I went to up to the Bach, and I've gone up there about five different times and done like long trips and taught workshops in the in the Bakken and sort of collected stories and met a lot of people who are working within the industry and are living up there. And so, and there's a lot of research involved too, this sort of scientific report. So it has a documentary, kind of a docu-poetic feel to it. Um, but it's really about, um, you know, the ravages of oil extraction and the fact that we just have to face the fact that we have to divest and turn away from fossil fuels. It's just, there's really no, there's really no, um, other alternative when you look at at um, the the sort of the facts of the matter, and I mean I think that even governments are coming to this to this place now finally, but um, so that that book is is you know sort of researched and um, it's a book length poem, and then the other book I'm working on is a book about. Um, the story I was telling you earlier about being a road musician and losing everything in a fire. And it's all about music and, and that it's called how fish learn to sing. And it's a kind of acoustic ecology of music. Mm. So I'm, I'm thinking about music as a force, you know, in the world. And um, like, why is it that people, um, you know, carry music around and hold it in their bodies and, you know, sort of steer their lives around it. And, it, it just like lives nowhere, you know, like how does it have so much power? Mm. So it's been my music has been sort of my longest standing relationship in my life. And so the book is about, it's a memoir. It's about my own kind of catastrophic career as a rock and roll musician, but it's about listening and it's about the spectacle of performance and all of that. So yeah, well, I love that title and, and the concept of acoustic ecology. That's really neat. <laughs> Um, well, we're up on time. Uh, let's close out with the last poem from the book. And this is a great poem uh, for this time of year, too. It's a, it's a frastic poem from a family photograph. So a lot of people are taking these family photographs. And then <laughs> maybe in you know 20 years, I can write a poem about it, too. Uh, this is back when we all got along. Well, speaking, I was a road musician for many years. And so I, I discovered that my family kept getting together and having family gatherings without me. And so this is one of those photographs where I saw them having a lot of fun. And I wasn't in the photograph because I was off on the road somewhere. Um, yeah, and here's the photograph for everybody um, oh. who's just listening. Yeah, you, I mean, you can't see it, Deborah, but I'm showing it on the screen for everybody. Uh, everybody on the porch um, at a family gathering <laughs> lined up on the uh, front stairs. Looks like a really uh, happy, <laughs> fun family, too. <laughs> They're having so much fun without me. Um, back when we all got along. Everyone's thinner, less worn in the face. The children are all on the wrong laps, disorderly pyramid of family spreading up the front steps. 
The sun is bright, the lawn so green. Father grasps the wrought iron rail on the top landing, his usual amused smirk, his waistband pulled high under armpits. Mother looks so young, a sister among daughters. The smallest grandson squirms on her lap. Wish I could insert myself beside them. I was missing all those years on the road playing music. My brother-in-law, Al, is missing too, probably visiting family in Oaks. And my second oldest sister has said something funny from behind the camera to get the kids to make faces. Stuck out tongues, googly-eyed monsters. Grandma stands on the lawn beside them, her delighted smile, her hands folded over her stomach. God health is with her, the man she married after Grandpa died, who is already senile or soon will be. Soon, too, three children for my brother and his young wife, plus the discovery that the other brother-in-law the one posed high on the landing with father, is using more than his fine carpentry skills to renovate the kitchen, bathroom, deck, and sunroom of the woman in town with the traveling husband. But not today. Today looks perfect, except for the wrinkle of the youngest daughter's absence. I want to bless them from this distance. Debbie is like the wind, they often say of me, you never know when she will blow into town. Uh, yeah, another beautiful ending. And you can see, I think that uh, I want to bless them from this distance was like the, the lodestone or anchor line or whatever you want to call it from that poem, because it, it's exactly what you were talking about there. And it was back when we all got along. And I got I you know had the luxury because um, I have two screens of looking at this photograph, too, at the same time. And uh, really fun to see how you describe so accurately just the expressions and people. I mean, just how ecrastic poetry works is is describing in detail what you're seeing and then letting sort of the truth, the, the psychological truth maybe emerge or emotional truth emerge from that. So it's a really great poem to end on. Um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Deborah. Really been so much fun talking to you tonight and um, and getting to explore your work in more detail. It's been great. Thank you so much, Timothy, for doing this podcast and, you know, for all you do to to bring the news of the world into poems, you know, every week and just your wonderful journal rattle. Thank oh, you. Thanks. Well, definitely my pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to you soon, Deborah. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, bye. It was Deborah Marquardt. Once again, her newest book is Gratitude with Dog Under Stars. You can find uh, all of Deborah's work, including this book, at her website, which is Deborah Marquardt. Uh, dot com. It's uh, spelled like it is in the book, a D-E-B-R-A-M-A-R-Q-U-R, or Q-U-A-R-T, uh, Deborah Marquardt dot com. So uh, do check out this book, a wonderful book, and a whole bunch of uh, other ones there as well, and Flyway Journal, which is a great uh, resource, too, for poetry uh, about the environment. Now we're going to take a, a quick break and go to uh, the prompt lines. And um, I have to pull up the prompt line slide because I... Um, <laughs> Because I um, didn't do that ahead of time either. I, I forgot a bunch of things. It's, it's Christmas time. Who is that? Yeah, so we got to find this week's slide. And there it is. So the prompt for this week was to um, write a poem that includes multiple lists. 
So kind of like, you know, be like Santa a little bit. <laughs> Find your list, check it twice, etc., etc. That was the prompt for this week. Based on a poem by um, Gayton Scro, um, who had multiple lists within one of his poems, too. So that was the inspiration for this week. Uh, write a poem that includes multiple lists. Of course, the prompt line is all four prompt poems. If you'd like to join us and share yours, I'm going to copy the uh, Zoom link and I'll put it in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. Only if you'd like to share a poem, um, join us there. Otherwise, you can sit right where you are. But if you'd like to share a poem, email it first to promptlines, promptlines at rattle.com. Promptlines, all one word, rattle.com. Email it there so I can show it on the screen. Then find the Zoom link, which I'm about to deploy, and join us on the Zoom. If you'd like to just sit back and enjoy the poems, the best thing to do is sit right where you are, either on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, um, and, uh, and do it there. So... Here's the link, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, now, Katie Dozier is here with us, our prompt poems editor from our Texas location, um, which is still in minimal mode. <laughs> hey, Katie, how you doing? I wish we were doing this from elsewhere in the house where you could see that I have actually been working very hard. I don't doubt you are one of the hardest working people I know. (laughs) It is the fourth floor, the little office at the top. And so, you know, obviously that comes last. (laughs) That makes sense too. And minimalism is a nice, you know, I like minimalist poetry. So maybe we could just go with that and keep it, keep the shelves bare. <laughs> that would be like the most uh, Scroogey like bookcase too. Like no book is good enough for my bookshelf. That's true. Or maybe maybe one book. There could be like one mystery book that manages actually, to make it every. I thought about just putting your book up here, but I thought you would hate me because that would be too cheesy. So I, I think spared everyone. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want you to do that. So anyway, <laughs> um, our prompt for this week was to write a poem that includes multiple lists. Um, and so what did you come up with? What was your, uh, how did you approach this, uh, this topic? Well, I approached it by wanting to write a hyphen because I haven't in a while. And, um, it did have me thinking in a Christmassy mood, uh, especially with Christmas having been just yesterday. So I kind of just attacked that and then naturally going into it, a couple of lists appeared. It doesn't, you know, it just come off as though it is a list poem, I'd say, but there are a couple lists within it. So I'm giving myself a passing grade. <laughs> passing grade, like a like a C plus, maybe a, a B. Maybe we'll <laughs> see. I'm, I'm we'll see. Out. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, the poem I'm sure is an A. Let's hear it. Okay. Twas the night before Hyben. If you listen closely, everything ticks and talks. Of course, the clock with its face is unreadable as someone overstuffed with Botox. The furnace, both heels and hooves on hard wood, even my grandmother's patchwork quilt. You should still hear the clack, clack, clack of her sewing machine. My fingers gallop along patchwork squares she pieced together from old doll clothes. The chain of white bread is running away at the steam, how it sounds to me just like a choo-choo train. Ghost. On the coffee table, the poker chips clank around in their case, bidding me to bet it all once more. The heavy set hardbacks I'll never read again clamp their shoulders shut against the breeze of my breath. Perhaps the leather of their spines knows they will outlive me. How the browning needles only know to cling to their branches. Every flame is a departure. Of Christmas past? Even that which only seems to murmur or buzz, like this beeswax candlestick, really flickers with insistence, stinging the scent of every second. Of course this wax and wick will burn down too. All we have is ours. But cookies must be eaten, baked for just the right amount of time. 
my life, the crescent moon of a stolen bite present. So the haiku is ghost of Christmas past present. <laughs> That's great. Love the haiku as always, Katie. And it's interesting. I was thinking about how um, the, the braided hyphen, which that is like where the hyphen is, is hidden in there. It, it's, it's very, um, you know, very page centric, like talking about that relationship between page and performance, you know, it, it comes across very differently um, you know, when you get to look at it versus when you uh, are just listening. Uh, it's an inter- interesting aspect of that. That's really funny you say that because I, I read it once out loud. Yeah, I was thinking about how... Um... And uh, it felt very awkward reading that haiku. <laughs> I thought like this is like... I, I read that and I was like, yes, I'm a page poet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, you know, there's that page versus stage competition they do in New York City. And, um, you know, paid, you mm-hmm. know the page wins you know, very often. So, so there's okay, that. Okay, well, that's good news. There's hope for me yet then. <laughs> yeah, well, that was great. I, I love the braided hyphen form. Uh, so much experimenting going on with hyphen. It's a lot of fun. And a great uh, occasional poem too, hint, hint. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So <laughs> my poem uh, for this week was also holiday themed. You'd think it was like the holidays or something because we keep doing okay. that. This is, um, and so I uh, was thinking about, I don't know what to write about. And it occurred to me that there was like a series of, of these trees. <laughs> and so that's like a list and I could like work with that. So this, and I ended up writing a villanelle because I thought a villanelle could be kind of like listy in the way it feels too. And then, uh, and then there are actually multiple lists in here, very small ones as well. So here is my poem, a villanelle called The First Prayer. There we go, The First Prayer. For years I tried to save our Christmas trees. I'd buy them potted, plant them in the backyard as if there were a god it might appease. Add water and some light, avoid the freeze, such simple steps. It couldn't be that hard. For years I tried to save our Christmas trees from drying out. How soft their whispered pleas, a weightless rain and brittle, shard by shard, as if they were a god they might appease. Inside, a fir, a spruce, a pine would tease me with its health, its vibrancy unmarred. For years I tried to save those Christmas trees. Come spring, you'd find me on my hands and knees, digging a figure of that old canard, as if there were a god it might appease. I tried and tried, but couldn't find the keys. Once dead, I'd drag them to the boulevard. For years, I tried to save our Christmas trees as if they were a god I might appease. That is the first prayer of Villanelle. That, that's um, wonderful. The rhymes. Yeah, I like how so casually you just bust out. <laughs> like I wasn't expecting that much, but that was great. Well, the entire thing also written while uh, playing Mario Kart in a tournament with my with my son and daughter. They were uh, they were very competitive, and I came in last place. But I did come up with a villanelle in the process. <laughs> uh, that was the first prayer. And both of these, we should mention, uh, are occasional poems. And this week on the poetry space, that's what we're going to be talking about um, is occasional poetry, which is poetry written for some kind of event. Uh, you know, there's inaugural poems, there's weddings, there's funerals. Um, and, you know, we talked, too, with, with Deborah about the difficulty of writing uh, poems like that are political and have that kind of message. You have to sort of sneak in the message. And in a way, you know, you have to do, you know, get sneak the poetry into an occasional poem or else it's just going to be a, sort of a greeting card type thing. So it's a lot to talk about. Uh, have you prepared it all for that? <laughs> I've been preparing my whole life. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> no, I, I don't know how we made it almost a year doing the poetry space before doing this topic, because really, if you think about it, for most people, that's when they encounter poetry. 
you know, the most frequently is with these occasional poems. So I think it'll be interesting and fun to look at. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about, too. And the way that like, somehow you have to sneak real poetry in, in order to to move people in a way that's authentic and what we're trying to do with poetry, while also, you know, getting, getting the uh, the point across. <laughs> so it's a really difficult thing to do. I think there's some quotes by Robert Frost about how difficult his inaugural uh, poem was back when he did that for, was it Eisenhower? I can't remember who it was for. But um, but yeah, it's a difficult thing to do. And I think that's something we should try to do more as poets to get poetry out into the world. So that's what we'll be talking about on the poetry space. And that is uh, Thursdays over on uh, the X platform. Um, if you want to participate, it's sort of like a roundtable uh, audio only. You can also find uh, the, the podcast version at uh, the poetry space. Just put that in any kind of podcast catcher and you'll find it. It was JFK's inauguration, says Mike Bales with it. Uh, that wow, Frost was good there. recall, Mike Bales. Yeah, That's excellent. impressive. Yeah, I, I thought that at first. <laughs> but I thought, wait a minute, was he old? Was he, you know, he might have been too old for JFK. But So I thought maybe Eisenhower, but no, he was right. So good job, Mike. Anyway, we will talk about all that and more this Thursday. Looking forward to that, Katie. And, uh, and we'll see you at the end of the show, too, to talk about next week's prompt. Me too. Thank you. All right, bye. That was Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor. And uh, first in line, we have none other than Dick Westheimer. Hey, Dick. Hello. I was just typing in the chat that JFK's eulogy for Frost was just one of the most stunning politician speeches I've ever heard. Oh, that's interesting. We'll have to look that up. I, I'm yeah, really, I'm I think you can find. Yes, you certainly can find the text, but it's it it really situates poetry in a place that we hope it to be, and not just occasional poems. So it, it, it's a really stunning little piece. Yeah, well, he was such a great order, and there's so much poetry in oration. It's kind of the, the where the, the, the overlap is on the Venn diagram or something. Yeah. Um, well, these list poems, <laughs> uh, mine got really rangy, because like, if you have multiple lists... You know, you go to town. And so yeah, it, was, it was something I've never actually seen a poem that had like multiple lists like that, like like um, Gaten's. And so uh, so I thought it'd be interesting to see what, what you all could come up with. As a challenge. Well, well, Deborah, Deborah had one tonight. Yeah, she did. I mean, that's the thing that uh, that uh, what not to put in your mouth was also the same exact poem, which I don't know. Maybe it's uh, I had noticed it. Maybe we conjured it from the ether. It might have been. <laughs> Well, mine is in in this. I I don't know. You know, I do not spend my life anguishing over being picked on as a little boy, but it seems to be come up in poems a lot. So yeah, well, I mean, if the, if it does, that means it's something that mattered psychologically that you haven't dealt with, I think, and so so now's your chance. <laughs> well, thank you, Doctor Green. Yeah, and there I, you go. I, I and how does pay, that make you I feel, will, Dick? <laughs> I will pay you in the morning. Yeah. Um, okay, checks in the mail. Um, <laughs> So uh, this one is, uh, I think I, I think I packed in a three lists, and it's just, like I said, it's got these long, rangy lines, and and uh, different sort of for me. Um, to the poet who was picked last in gym class because she had scoliosis, I wish I was you, because then I would have an excuse for all the times I was picked last, other than I couldn't throw couldn't catch, couldn't hit, couldn't kick, and wore orthopedic shoes with leather soles. I was the only person on the math team except for Mary Laurie, who the kids teased for having two first names. 
I teased her too. And then she called me a dick and I quit and did maths at home, counting in all the bases and estimating the angles of roofs, graphing parabolas on green line paper, looking up the values of E and arc cosines and went on crazy tangents about toruses and traffic patterns and orbital trajectories and the melting point of sulfur and the names of stars and strange quarks and mesons and bosons. But then I learned to run the 50-yard dash really fast and thought that all the kids would like me, which they didn't, but I loved running anyway and still do today, and I wish I could apologize to Mary Laurie and get to know her grandchildren, one of whom I'm sure writes poetry and another is an astronaut, and I feel bad for those boys who called me names because they might not know what it feels like to wander in the woods and find your way to a meadow filled with black-eyed rubecchia and sky-blue lupine, purple cloneflower and goldenrod, and orange-winged monarchs on milkweed whose seeds float on the wind like the imagination of a child who might never have written these things had he been not been picked last in gym class. Uh, that was great, Antic. One of those long poems, one sentence or, or maybe two or three that just keep going on relentlessly. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, your wonderful details. And I, I love it. Oh, thanks so much. Can't wait to hear the others. Yeah, yeah, me too. That was Dick Westheimer with uh, To the Poet Who Was Picked Last in Gym Class Because She Had Scoliosis. Um, let's go next to uh, Nivity to Karthik because, you know, given the time, we'll make sure we get Nivy in uh, where she is. Hey, Nivy. Hey, Tim. How are you doing? Great. It's great to see you. And you don't look like you're at work maybe today. You're, the location is slightly um, different. <laughs> I'm back at home in Chennai, South uh -huh. India, with oh. my mom. So if I'm here, I don't have to go to work, so I just have to open my laptop for work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds good. That's that's the way to do it. That's how I do it here, too. Uh, you know, working from home is the way to go. <laughs> Which is why I'm a bit more relaxed today. And I actually caught the entire show and sort of halfway on the metro and listening with one ear open and one ear closed. But it was fun. Tepe was amazing today. Oh, great. Well, I'm so glad he could. So mm -hmm. so what do you have to share with us today? Um, I have an actual list poem with seven tiny lists in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's multiple for sure. <laughs> Another overachieving sure. poem from Nivy. <laughs> um, it's called Symphony of the Rainbow because, I mean, I wanted something... Not too serious because it's the holiday season and season's greetings to everybody. But um, being a Hindu, I don't technically celebrate Christmas, although I do put up a Christmas tree. So I didn't really know what to write about Christmas. So I just thought, why not write something fun instead? <laughs> uh, so it's called Symphony of the Rainbow. The spectrum of flavor unfolds as we journey along the rainbow on an adventure untold. Enchanting elegance. Lavenders with their fragrant and calming note guide our noses to where the plums reside, snug and sweet in their royal court, while all around outside bloom violets, the garden's secret anecdote. Cosmic creation. Elderberries and their deep blue allure remind us of the midnight sky's cosmic contour, forming the perfect backdrop for indigoing to take us on a poetic tour. Azure awakenings. Blue oceans await us, vast and deep, deeper even than blueberries safe in a muffin scape, but lighter than the blue hydrangeas where our dreams sleep. Verdant vistas, 
crisp green apples make for a tangy start as we gaze up at emerald leaves, nature's work of art, while sipping on some green tea to calm our racing heart. Citrus Symphony, bananas are a bright and cheerful sight that pair well with lemons for a burst of citrusy delight and are more joyous than the yellow daffodils nodding their heads under the weak spring sunlight. Radiant Reverie, oranges and their sun-kissed embrace combine with autumnal pumpkins to create a festive space while tangerines share with us a citrusy grace. Scarlet Secrets. Ripe strawberries are a garden's biggest treasure, matched perhaps by ruby red apples in flavorful measure. However, nothing quite compares with red roses. Love's timeless pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, very fun. I've never seen a poem like that before. Uh, Rhyming-based lists is a really cool <laughs> idea. It, since I've never seen it, maybe you could coin it. What, what would you call it? <laughs> Hmm, that's that's odd. Yeah. Let me think about it and get back to you. I have <laughs> okay. about four. Well, that's your assignment for next week. Right I can't think of one off the top of my head. Yeah, let's make up a name and then we we call it the the Nivy List. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Nivy, it's great to see you. Thank you, Tim, and seasons greetings to everybody. Same to you. Take care. Thank you. This is Nivy with a Symphony of the Rainbow. Uh, let's go next to Carla Schwartz. Hi, hey, everybody. Carla. Yeah, good to see you. Good to see you too. And um, this is very fresh. I wasn't exactly sure about we it. We love but... fresh poems as much as fresh bread. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, maybe even more nutritious. So this is called, and it's a high then too. Interesting. And okay. it's called, I've been searching the internet for you, but instead came across this letter from 40 years ago. Oh, that's cool. I love the title. Okay. <laughs> Dated 1983. I thought of just storing it with the others, but then began to read your letter in response to one of mine, in which I must have listed each of the seemingly never-ending 800 miles I'd cycled down rivers, over mountain passes, through California redwoods, and inland. This feat, followed by a visit with Utah's dinosaur bones and three days of hiking at altitude above Colorado's tree lines, you mentioned none of that, but mentioned how strong I must be, and back then I was strong, but also weak. You then start a list of your own, your vacations into Quebec, Lille au Coudre, Montreal, eating poutine. You wrote that in a year before, you wrote that in a year before I moved to Montreal, but somehow I knew to advise that the Gaspé would be too far to go. We were so close then. You shared how you and Kay followed your hearts, that your father's psyche was damaged, that you aimed to connect with him more in the future, that your grandmother had died. Correlation, a best friend's brother, writing. Toward the end of the letter, you started a cross out in your French, even hearts don't even hearts shared don't dare reveal the truth. But I could read through the crossouts. You are not sure of Kay's love or your love for her. And yet later, you two married, parented, and later divorced. Fortune telling, we cross out the truest lines. 
I find this on the internet, a second marriage and address a father who's still living with you at 100. The last time I saw you, you were cracked open, unsure if you had MS. My old friends are dying. I'm afraid to lose you before I find you. Kohlrabi dreams of old friends, turnips instead. Oh, wonderful hymen, Carla. And I love the haiku, especially. It's really neat to see uh, everybody's interpretations of these. We have such good poets on the open lines and, and no exception there. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Good night, everyone. Take care. Yeah, I love that, that use of the list. Too. That was really neat. Uh, let's go next to uh, Mike Bales. Hey, Mike. Oh, you had some nice holiday pictures on Facebook. Oh, Katie thanks. did of you and everyone. Um, <laughs> I had the pleasure of meeting Deborah Marquardt about 20 years ago. There's an international poetry in Des Moines, and there are two bands of people, Quad City people that went up to catch the international poetry. Mm-hmm. And she had a very political poem, which actually gave me a neat voice for a poem that's called Sweet Crude. Oh, yeah? Which might be a poem to check out. Mm-hmm. Well, very um, cool. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was thinking she's up by your neck of the woods there in uh, in Middle America. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Iowa State is uh, where I started college. Um, mm-hmm. Then I, I finished at University of Northern Iowa, but I think of Iowa State more. Um, we're going back to flagging with this poem. <laughs> All right. Well, we won't uh, go back to the flag. Why not? <laughs> yeah. I'm a flagger poet. Um, <laughs> my poem is the construction foreman gives a safety talk to the flaggers, which one did actually. We usually did our own safety talks, but he was a good guy and he talked to us. So here's the poem. He said the locals are sick of work on the highway. He said that the work had been going on for three years. He said it was their road, not ours. He said that each of us should find an escape, place to leave. He said the life can change in an instant. He told a story about a flagger who was hit by a car and crippled. He took he took us on as if members of his crew as we gathered along the side of the road. He said there would be a matter of months before he would retire. He said that he wanted to spend more time with his wife. He said that he said this time it would be for good. As the sun broke through the clouds, he told us to take our places. He said that for every ending there was a beginning. Oh, I love that. There was a list of uh, statements. Great, great, Mike. And uh, it's one of those poems. I was thinking about uh, how Deborah Marquardt's poem about the one not to put in your mouth. It's one of those weird things where the poem, even though it's just, you know, being a poem might actually save lives, you know, like, like, oh, like, don't put that in your mouth. But, uh, oh. but the same thing with flagging, though. I mean, you know, it's uh, something that people don't think about. But it's like, uh, you know, I hate how terrible drivers are as I'm driving down the road. But like oh, mostly terrible. it's not like um. me standing there on the side of the road with the potential of being hit. So um, so really, I hope that poem makes people drive a little more safely in construction zones, for one thing. I hope a lot of them are listening to Rattle then. <laughs> um, yeah, this is pretty close to the things he said. Um he also had a big thing about having this the cone where people would stop a long ways away in case one car hit another and drove it towards us. We'd have a little reaction time to jump in the ditch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's a good thing. I mean, just the, to think that, that everybody out there has to think of that is something that could make people drive a little more safely, I think. So that's a really good I'd point hope. to share. Yeah. 
Well, well, thanks so much, Mike. It's always a pleasure hearing those stories. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. That was a Mike Bales with a, the construction foreman gives a safety talk to the flaggers. Uh, Zachary Honeycutt is up next. <clears throat> Hello, Zach. Hey, how's it going, Tim? Merry yeah. Christmas, guys. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Great to see you. <laughs> Great to see you guys, too. So I have a bit of a surprise tonight for the list prompt poem. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I was going to share problem, my nativity. Zach, I have to cut you off. The only problem is that a yeah. surprise from you is not a surprise. You've sort of <laughs> built surprise into the uh, the MO. So, so we're expecting surprise. So if you do something exactly <laughs> normal, we would be surprised at that point. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad my surprisingness is normal. I'm happy to hear that. I'm, yeah. I'm glad, yeah. Okay. So this is my... Uh, yeah, so I did a satire of the night before Christmas, and I made it rhyme, and I incorporated some of you lovely poets into the mix. So uh, don't get mad at me if there's a few jokes at you all. They're all done tastefully in good humor. It is a satire. Well, this is going to be really funny. I'm <laughs> looking forward to exactly that. <laughs> a visit from St. Nathan, a satire. "'Twas the night after Christmas, when through the office of Rattle Magazine, all the poets were stirring, especially Tim Green. The year's final rejection letters were sent by Katie with the click of a mouse, along with a list of invitations to poetry friends to spend the holiday at their house." Katie, with pen and paper in her throbbing hand, was still awake and surviving off caffeine. And with a smile that hid her ache, she jotted down a list of the thoughts of Tim Green. Nivy's big in India, so she can't come. And Brian's too busy buying glue for the little donkey's bum. The Northern poet has flown south from the coldest winter you could remember. And Carla's still basking in thoughts of the beauty of December. Bizwahit's taking pictures and writing haiku. I guess what I'm saying, Katie, don't write this down. It looks like it may just be me and you. When suddenly there was a knock at the door that made such a rattle. Oh no! Katie jumped up and Tilden fell down off his metaphorical saddle of woe. Tim crawled to the door as he peeled it back open for the ghost of a moment seemed surly. Then he saw Zach who said, I pulled a Dick Westheimer and showed up fashionably early. Katie beamed brightly. Tim cracked a beard entrenched smile. No, more of a hair girdled smirk. Zach replied to their faces, I'm happy I made it, but I left your gifts home and I feel like a jerk. Then the sound of a second rap they turned their focus away from Zach's gaffe and noticed Christina, who Katie noted still did not look a day past twelve and a half. I'm happy to be here, though I've been wrestling with the ghost of Ernest Hilbert's present. But I'm happy to be here, and the brisk night's air, just like Poe, is awfully pleasant. Then she floated somewhere dark in light of yet another knock. And in the wake of dim lighting, they brush the sleep from their eyes to set their sights on odd writings. Hey, George, said Tim. Brian, exclaimed Katie. 
I was looking for barnyard asses, he replied, while George laughed and wiped the snow from his glasses. As you can see, we brought ourselves, but no gifts. Come in, they replied, have some hot cocoa or tea. The best gift is that we can all be together like one poetry family. Bang, another knock, this time Krista and Pedro. Mike, Mark, don't forget Clayton Clark, poets down the block, Tammy, Gwendolyn, and Joe, and some poet Zach's seen on the show, but doesn't know. Ah, Tim, said Dick, with a soft and sweet sigh, tonight we'll enjoy such a wondrous read. I brought you and Katie some gigantic broccoli I grew in my garden from this little seed. Katie's bright eyes grew huge at the small sea of dirt Dick had spilled on the floor. So Tim allocated some brooms from his personal store. Richard set down the plants he brought, but of store-bought gifts, said he, I'm barren. As Zack and the poets swept up, he said, that's not how I pictured you'd use a broom, Sharon. Katie giggled, George joked, Brian read in an Irish brogue. After each poem, there was a clap. Greg read the most articulate, long-winded free verse poem about how it feels to take a crap. There was no need for gifts. We had the spirit when suddenly we looked up because we heard some ruckus from atop the roof and thought to ourselves aloud, Santa, why had the big white beard remained aloof? Crash! Through the roof he fell and the tagalabes snapped from his weight. A giant sack nearly covered him, but from the reddish beard sticking out, we deduced, Nate! Merry Christmas, Nate's voice boomed as he stood up. You don't know what I've been through. I've flown around the world, and I've brought Nivy too. Then he stopped down, stooped down into his big bag, and hoisted little Nivy from the sack. He told tales of how he brought Jenny Middleton gifts in London, then how he went to an English mall to bring them back. He pulled out a long pool stick for Katie and brought Zack a cool Poe mug. He gave Brian another lawn ornament, but then Tim whispered in his ear his own lament. But what about me, Nate? There's something I'd like, but I'm afraid you'll think I'm weird. Nate chuckled a hearty ho, 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 and knew, then pulled out some tiny scissors from his big pocket and cut Tim a piece of his hanging beard. Then Nate held up the hairy patch and beamed at the hairy mess, and borrowing a line he tweaked from the Polar Express, shouted, the last gift of Christmas. Now you'll have the biggest beard of all, said Katie kissing Tim's nape. Tim frowned and replied, oh, Katie, if only we hadn't ran out of tape. <laughs> that was great, Zach. I don't know what the best part was. It was going to be uh, the, the Dick Westheimer jokes <laughs> about reviving early and, uh, and the broccoli. But then when Nate shows up with a beard, I don't know that must take it. That, that is excellent. Yeah, really fun. I have to chime in and say that was amazing, Zachary. Thank you so much for writing that. What a, an amazing Christmas present that was to get you to hear you read that. I was laughing so hard. Thank you so much for writing that. I love how you included so many people in like the most perfect way too. So thanks for writing yeah. that. Oh my gosh, I love that. 
That's my Christmas gift for you all. I, I wrote it on the fly. I had a couple more ideas, but I ran out of time. But I was going to do like a whole extended thing about how I wrote a sonnet about scotch tape, which really wasn't helpful because, you know, I didn't actually bring the tape and like, yeah, and uh, just all different ideas. But that's what I came up with on the fly. So, yeah. Well, that was yeah. it. I don't know how that was on the fly. That is so impressive to me. And <laughs> I really, really hope that next year you do it again, not to put any pressure on you. But it's also funny because that was an occasional poem and the occasion is right now. So yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thank you guys. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a sequel. I'll make a, a night after Christmas part two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks so much, Jack. That, that was so much fun. And uh, really looking forward to it. You are definitely on the spot for next year. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys. See you guys next week. Merry Take Christmas. Yep, yep. Merry Christmas. Happy Happy New Year. You guys too. Yep. That was a Zachary Honeycutt with uh, a visit from St. Nathan. <laughs> great, great uh, holiday poem there. Let's go to uh, Susan Talley to round out the Zoom. Hey, Hello. Susan. Yeah, great to see you. It's been a bit. These prompts always make me think. And so what makes a list? Do we number it? If I put numbers on every line on a poem itself, wouldn't the poem be a list? I think so, yeah. <laughs> so in that way, I could sneak in a poem and call it a list poem. Um, and a list of related things. What I wanted to do, much like the past poet, mm -hmm. is to title it, has anyone ever done this too? Something like that, or thought this too. Mm -hmm. And I also would relate to people because even from my perspective, I'm getting to know people, you know? Mm -hmm. So I sometimes will write a poem like that because I could. Um, so this is just a poem that I'm trying to make it be like a list, so I'll try to read it like a list. Okay, yeah, let's hear it. Go ahead. Thank you. That Sunday in the park. He seemed out of place, wearing a kilt, carrying bagpipes, not quite a tune played. I watched him blaze his own horizon, the hill he roamed, my familiar climb, at times with the music of the spheres. And at the best, the timbre of the evergreens, a composition of harmonics, at once bluesy, and then the pitch would split, like a reed chopped in half, not unlike a siren, I heard a salute, maybe to the setting sun, or a Sunday in the park. Was he reaching back to the clan, Ireland or Scotland? When I turned back, his silhouette, and salutation, a little sad, but the sky was a beautiful blue-red violet, and I turned back to savor the setting. Oh, that was beautiful. I really love that, Sally. And, uh, and you know, you could see what you're talking about, you know, a poem as a list of lines, like a list of things to notice. I think it worked really well. also love the cat cameo. <laughs> oh, thank you. so much, but it's always fun when a cat appears. Uh, but wonderful, that Sunday in the park. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, that was Susan Talley with uh, That Sunday in the Park. Um, look, I think that's it for the list poems. I'm kind of flipping through. Okay, yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for that. Now let's go to our uh, Saiku for the week. And um, the Saiku was this. It was based on this story. I'll put it up on screen. I, I thought this was really interesting. This might be useful to everybody out there. Here we go. 
Um, light color is less important for the internal clock than originally thought. And so there's this whole thing about, um, you know, blue light being bad for sleep. And, you know, so, so they have those um, settings on, you know, iPads and iPhones and computers and whatnot to get more yellow light, less blue, because supposedly that um, makes you uh, makes it difficult to fall asleep being exposed to that blue light. Um, that was based on a single study in mice, actually, um, a while ago. And it turns out when you actually study that in humans the color makes no difference. <laughs> so all of those, um, all of those, you know, iPads and stuff where they have the night mode, just, just turn down the brightness. <laughs> and it's because it's actually the, the rods that have the actual, like they measure the volume of photons, not the cones that do the light that actually affect your sleep. Apparently, according to the study, they had 25 people and just basically showed them, expose them to different uh, amounts of different colors of light before bedtime. And they realized that it was just all has nothing to do with the color of the light. It's just the brightness. <laughs> and so don't worry about that. The blue, the yellow, you can see that some of these pictures here, you know, they expose them to pictures of different kinds of light. Like the top one is like the regular photo. The bottom is like what would be in a night kind of uh, iPad. And it didn't matter. <laughs> so, uh, so if you want to sleep, don't worry about the blue light. Just kind of keep it dark. You know, another thing that helps is uh, the, the temperature. You know, there's other stuff like that that's really good. Keep it cold in there. But anyway, that is the uh, interesting article for this week. And the Saiku based on that is here. Late night, the hue one shade more blue. Late night, the hue one shade more blue. That is your Saiku for the week. And now let's bring back Katie Dozier, um, our prompt poems editor. Hey, Katie. Hi, nice Saiku. Yeah, thanks. And that is, uh, you know, a good information, I think, that, uh, you know, like half of all science uh, papers, it turns out not to be true. That, uh, <laughs> that, that... that blue light doesn't, that is very funny. That's bad news for some people making blue light blocking glasses or blue light pro. I lost track and just gave up and accepted all the colors of light. Yeah, sure. Although those blue blocking <laughs> sunglasses, I think you do see clearer. I think there's like... Maybe there's some basis, like there's less straininess to the, the feel. I kind of comes like at a price though, because you look kind of weird wearing. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Excellent point. Um, so the prompt for next week. Uh, do you have that with you this time? Why, yes, yes, I do. Some kind gentleman sent it to me earlier, so it was written out. So the prompt for next week: Look at an old family photograph and find an object in the background that you hadn't noticed before. Write a poem about it. <laughs> there you go. And that is a uh, she said that's a combination of two poems from uh, Deborah Marquardt. So she had the, um, if you turn back the clock on the uh, YouTube video or whatever, she had the uh, telephone, the landline poem about the old telephone, mm-hmm. uh, which you can kind of imagine in the background, an old object. Then she also had the family photo at the end of the show. So we sort of mashed those up mm-hmm. and, uh, and made a prompt for this week that hopefully will be a little easier because I did think this week's prompt was pretty tough. <laughs> Well, you didn't make it look tough in the end, managing to write a great villanelle while it took admittedly losing the... a Mario Kart. It would have been a lot more impressive if you had if lost I'd won it. Two. Yeah. Well, I could have made it up. There's no one here that witnessed, so I could have, but, you know. That's true. The poetic truth was that I lost. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope to. I'm going to be looking through my old family photographs, hoping that there's a lodestone in it, because that was my favorite part of this episode and during the interview talking about the idea of a lodestone. And it is like... When I look at my own poems, there's a line in there that I'm like, yes, that is that. But I never had a word for it. So I thought that was super interesting, thinking about the lodestone of Yeah, that's a really good way. And I never come across that either. It's a good way to think of it. There's a certain line that, like, wants to be that length and size. And then basing the the feel of the rest around that is a really good idea to do. 
Um, and I think we should mention too uh, that the prompt poems, uh, the deadline is, uh, <laughs> of course, uh, December 31st. It's a monthly thing. This mm-hmm. prompt, because it's due in January, will be part of the January prompt poem of the month. Right. So you have the previous four prompts to choose from. Not this mm-hmm. one. This one will be from January. So hold your hold your fire. Wait till January mm-hmm. for sending these poems. Right. But send the previous four. And, and let me put it up on the screen. Uh, and I'll say why you're where yeah. you're pulling that up. Just that uh, the delay. There is a short delay at the beginning of the month where you cannot submit your poems, and that is just so that I can get caught up, look through everyone's poems, and reset. Um, but you know, I will continue to read the poems quickly and get to them. But having that little bit of a delay really helps me to be able to feel like I've checked everything off and that everything is organized as I like to do. Yeah, excellent. Good point. Yeah. So we will we'll sort of open up the January a day or two after January. We kind of do the same thing with the Frastic Challenge, too, because those problems just come up. It gets confusing yeah. as to which poem people are writing about, too. So having a little a clear demarcation within the submittable is really uh really helpful and this is how you do it so you go to uh you go to rattle.com slash prompts and you'll see the click to submit and then you can see the four prompts for this month the four prompts were the first one was write a poem about a pain from childhood that and use a refrain remember that that seems like a long time ago i know that feels like six months ago it really does (laughs) whoa and then the next was a write a poem that begins with an idiomatic expression that you take literally or incorrectly and see where it goes uh, the, the Bob Hickok style theme. Then, uh, then the next one is moving through an unnatural environment and describe it as though you were writing a nature poem. So the unnatural nature poem. And then finally, the multiple lists for this week. Those are the four that count for December. So submit yours by uh, New Year's. So I'm, I'm, I like hearing our list, our prompts lined up like that. I think we did a good job. <laughs> yeah, see, I, the thing is, I meant to do that every month at the end, and then I've forgotten every month until now. <laughs> so, well, you're doing great. You're closing out the year on a win, so that's job. what's important. Well, thank you, Katie Dozier. <laughs> <laughs> so that is going to wrap up the show for today and for the year, as, uh, as our younger viewers like to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like my daughter's obsessed with telling you every time, see you next year, Tim. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, but we will see you next year well if you're gonna watch uh, the critique of the week we'll see you this year still too so a little caveat there but on the rattlecast <laughs> and if you do the poetry space on thursday too we'll see you this year but the rattlecast we'll see you next year and uh next week's guest in the rattlecast is going to be um matthew buckley smith now matthew buckley smith is a wonderful uh, formalist poet and his newest book uh, which is not out yet it's coming out this spring actually but he wanted to be on anyway um, is the winner of the Richard Wilbur uh, Poetry Award. So it's a formal poetry-based uh, award. Just a wonderful formal poet. Um, great. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of envious of um, his, his use of form. The book's called Midlife. It's his second book. He's also the host of a podcast, so that'll be interesting, too, about uh, poetry and, and all things interesting. Uh, that is Matthew Buckley-Smith, Radicast 226, um, on the New Year. So we move this one up a day. But the it's regular Monday because really New Year's is over once the you know once it's like January first at eight PM Eastern, so we didn't bother moving that one up. Uh, it's just January first uh, Monday. Start off your week the right way with Rattlecast number two twenty six, and your prompt to uh, look at an old family photograph and find an object in the background that you hadn't noticed before and write a poem about that. So that's what we're gonna do next week Monday. Uh, January 1st, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, We will see you next year. Hope you have a great night, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.